It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 13. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story. I'm excited about the great variety of readings we have for you today. From poetry to suspense to a tale from true life plus one of Steve's vignettes, I promise you'll be entertained and maybe even inspired. We'll begin with an excerpt from an upcoming book titled The Beast of Stratton by romantic suspense author Renee Blair. A little background first. Miles Stratton, a former military helicopter pilot who served in Iraq, is talking with his stepbrother, Ray Menotti. Ray propped his foot on his knee. Did you meet the new hire today? The excitement in Ray's voice didn't escape Miles. He tossed the comb on the coffee table and walked into the kitchen. He tore into a carton of orange juice and tipped it back. The liquid burned at his sore throat but tasted so good. No. He walked to the couch and finished off the liquid in one swallow. Miles set the box on the table. She's a real Barbie doll. I think I'll ask her out tomorrow night. Miles clenched his hands around his knee. His stepbrother's attitude grated across his last nerve. I thought you already had a lady friend. Ray folded his tie and shrugged. I guess she's found better pastures. Leave the staff alone, Ray, especially the new people. Miles scooped the trash off the table after shoving his comb in his back pocket. The man gave him such trouble. Most women at Stratton avoided him with good reason. Behave yourself for once. Oh, don't worry, but this one's a catch. Ray stood and grabbed his jacket. After pulling the door open, he paused and flashed him a cocky grin. Who knows what'll happen? The door closed with a soft click and fury swept through Miles. Such blatant disregard for his orders. Again, in a flash, he sent the load crashing into the dark wood. His entire body shook from the force of his anger and he fought to control his breathing. His mother had married a rich Italian businessman before his deployment to Iraq. Sergio, Sergio Minotti spent most of his time playing in the stocks and betting on car races. His son flitted from one resort to another, spending his father's money. It was a surprise when she'd asked Miles to give Ray a job at Stratton. As CEO, Miles had reluctantly agreed. Why? He didn't have a clue, but he determined a long time ago... Raimondo Menotti was trouble. I'm sick of this. The garbage glared against the tile in the entryway, and misery coursed through him. God, you deal with him. I can't anymore. He sighed and limped toward the mess. After tossing the trash in the garbage can, Miles soaked up the splatters of orange with paper towels. The penthouse vibrated with silence. He sucked in a breath and stared at the ceiling. Why waste his time? God never answered. A knock sounded by his ear. With a groan, Miles forced himself to his feet. Great. Another visitor. This day kept getting better. He opened the door. Mother. 
He stepped back to allow the elegant woman into the penthouse. Hello, sweetheart. I thought you'd be here. Ingrid blew a kiss at him. Her eyes skimmed the paper towels and cleanser on the floor. You've had company. You sound surprised? Miles set the cleaning supplies in the kitchen. His mother patted the couch beside her when he walked into the living room. Come here, honey. I need to speak with you. Her firm expression belied her gentle tone. His gut clenched and his palms began to sweat. Great, one of her dreaded talks. Miles sat. She smiled. How are you doing? I'm fine. He rubbed his knee. When a soft sigh reached his ears, he squinted at her. What? A tentative hand brushed his fingers before clasping the other lightly in her lap. I can tell you're moving better. As good as always. And the nightmares? Miles reared off the couch and stalked into the kitchen. Leaning against the breakfast bar, he eyed her from under the cabinets. What do you want, mother? She pursed her lips. After a moment of silence, Ingrid relaxed into the cushions. We've hired a new secretary. He took a glass out of the cupboard and filled it with water. An often enough occurrence, but you usually don't deliver their names to me in person. I know, dear, but I thought you may be acquainted with this particular lady. Well, heard of her. She rose from the couch and slid a stool out. Perching on the edge of the seat, Ingrid schooled her features into impassivity. Miles moved around the bar and sat next to his mother. Is this about Ray? The quick shake of her head sent her diamond earrings dancing. Oh no, that boy is a pain in my backside. This little lady? Well, she's yours, dear. Confusion swept through him. Mine? I can tell by your expression you haven't a clue what I'm talking about. Ingrid patted his cheek. Don't! Miles jerked his head. The second the word ground from his throat, his mother's face lost all color. Closing his eyes, Miles rubbed his forehead. I'm sorry. Her blunt whisper barely reached his ears. The sound of water dripping down the drain accompanied his steps into the living room, but he didn't utter a word. She followed him without a sound and settled on the cushions in one corner of the couch. From wherever that awful war has captured my son, I want him back. Tears glistened in her aqua blue eyes. He propped against the armrest and stretched out his leg, fingering his mane. After a brief silence, he cleared his throat. Tell me about this new hire. She brushed at her face. Her shoulders back, determination squared her jaw. She reminded him of a bulldog. He wondered, who was the bone? Do you remember the architect you promoted before you left? She tapped on her chin. Oh, I, I can't remember his name. His throat constricted. Stephen? She snapped her fingers. Yes, Stephen Hart. Miles flinched at the sound. Paint shot through his temples and his skull pulsed. What about him? Her eyes widened at his bark. Oh, I'm sorry, dear. I'm trying to place the man. Total nerd. Think of Ryan except taller. Awesome architect, though. Miles leaned forward, his beard touching his knees, and repeated, What about him, mother? After you left, we had issues with some of our competitors. Ray tried to handle it, but... She lifted her hands and dropped them in defeat. He isn't you, Miles. What does this have to do with Stephen? She she stood and took a few steps. Oh, I thought you knew. He and several others left. Lockhurst stole them right from under our noses. Stephen Hart? His voice rose in disbelief. He shook his head to clear it. He remembered his last night before leaving for Iraq. He'd wandered into Stephen's lab, like the many nights before, 
and talked to him for hours. At dawn, the man had driven him to the airport. But I haven't told you the worst part yet. His mother's voice dropped. The Ansari designs are gone, including the drafts. The only person with access is, was, Hart. Stephen wouldn't, no, couldn't betray him. The architect may be a little strange and even antisocial at times, but he'd never. And this pertains to your new hire, how? She patted her coiffed hair and took a deep breath. His daughter called me last week and asked if we had her father's contact information. Miles ran a hand down his beard. He lifted an eyebrow and shrugged. I've never met his daughter, although he's shown me a few pictures. I wouldn't call that a surprise, considering the circumstances, mother. She shot, shot a dark look his way. Don't blame me for your security, Miles. Anyway, I told her I had been in contact with him, but that wasn't good enough for her. She begged me to let her come on board. She's quite the talker. Before I knew it, I'd agreed. Are you sure it was her? What was her name? His mother's shoulders drooped slightly. She shook her head. He frowned. What's wrong? She smoothed her slacks and took several steps toward the front door, but stopped. Her gaze rested on his worn pants and her brows crinkled. Oh, honey, I think I'd better go. This was a bad idea. His hand landed above her head, blocking her exit. Tell me. She pulled on the knob until he stepped away. Amy Price. She started today in the pool. I should have talked to you. I'm sorry, son. The door closed quietly behind her and Miles leaned against the wood. Interesting. Amber Marie Hart, a.k.a. Amy Price, had joined his secretarial pool. Price, where'd she come up with that one? He strode to his sofa and withdrew a small worn picture from the end table drawer. A young blonde waited in the surf, the sun flashing off her bright hair and the blue water. Her smile was as bright as the morning light over her shoulder. Miles groaned. Stephen's daughter, commercial architect and protege, a secretary? Now that was as likely as him shaving his beard or his best friend turning traitor. Intriguing story. Look for The Beast of Stratton to be released in mid-March. One of the cool things about the author, Renee Blair, is that she was raised in Wyoming like I was. As she says, though we both now live elsewhere, Wyoming is in our blood. Speaking of where we're from, here's a poem by our friend Pam McClary titled, Where I'm From. I am from cornfields and from knee-high by the 4th of July. I am from plump red tomatoes warmed by the summer sun and from just dust them off and eat them right out of the garden. I am from black skies and tornado warnings and from lightning bolts dancing around the windmill. I am from no school, snow days, and from snow angels and igloos after sleeping in. I am from black cows in Atfil Kuchin, from Emal Edward and Anna Marie. I'm from Culver Lake and sand in the bathtub. From deal with it and watch your mouth, young lady. I'm from 29 cousins and from it's my turn to spin. I'm from I see two of everything and from I hate my crooked teeth. I'm from kickball on the street and from hide hide and go seek in the cemetery. 
I'm from Potato Pancakes and Windmill Cookies from Hubert Hackett in Elta Marie. I'm from bicycling all over town and from remaking clothes and crocheting doily so her hands won't stiffen. I'm from the willow tree outside their house and from the Sandman won't come if you don't close your eyes. I'm from Pepsi Cat Movies and from Milk Duds and Jujubes. I'm from 500 Rummy Monopoly and Sorry. And from Let Your Sister Win This Time. I'm from the Yellow Cab that took my dad away. And from I Love Her Better. I'm from these moments, sap weeping from a wounded tree, becoming all sweetness. We Americans often travel from where we're from to visit other locales around our great country. This story is about a trip Becky and I took, and it happened many years ago, long before we had the kids squirming in the back seat. It's called Overnight My wife and I were traveling, and it was late in a dark, moonless night. The only illumination anywhere around us came from our car headlights. We had no place to stay, and any motels were miles away. What were we to do? We found a wide spot on the road that was little more than a soft shoulder. There, just right. We were a safe distance off the pavement, and we thought, somewhat hidden by brush. But it was so dark. Drunk drivers wouldn't affect us, no. We shut off the engine, reclined the seats, and blacked out in a solid sleep. Then we heard a noise. Coming out of a slumber like that, we weren't certain at first what it was, but it wasn't a crash and not a clamor or a clang. It wasn't a ring, a roar, a shot, or a squawk. It was an incredibly loud air horn. But about the time we realized the source of the sound, the train whizzed by like a rocket on wheels. It was only a few feet away. We had parked parallel to the tracks, and the car rocked back and forth because of the wind and vibrations produced by that moving steel wall. It was scary, but we were safe. were the days. The co-author of my first book, Larry Baker, recently traveled from where he's from, Colorado, to visit us and other friends in Idaho. We've read before from It's a God Thing, inspiring stories of life-changing friendships. This chapter talks a bit about Larry's experience with life and friendship after divorce. The single life isn't always easy, especially since I enjoy marriage, but God has given me a great life. He's blessed me with an abundance of good friends and good times. The Lord not only sends men and women for me to minister to, He sends friends to minister to me. They keep me from suffering the devastating loneliness singles often feel, and they help keep my cup full so I can give to others. One of those encouragers was Jamie, a gorgeous green-eyed blonde introduced to me by a friend who said, You both have lots of energy and a zest for living, so I thought you should meet. He was right. Jamie and I did have much in common and found we could talk with each other for hours. One evening at dinner, Jamie said, Larry, I think we're going to be good friends and we're going to be spending quite a bit of time together. But there's something I have to tell you before our friendship goes any further. You need to know God has first place in my life because He miraculously changed me. I'd like to tell you about it. I nodded my head. I'd like to hear about it. 
I used to be a party girl, Jamie continued. When I lived in Denver, I dated several of the Broncos and met a lot of people in the fast lane. I drank a lot, partied hard. It probably won't surprise you that my wild, fast-paced lifestyle did not include God. Never in my life did I consider having a relationship with Him. It just wasn't something I had ever heard or thought about. She shook her blonde hair as though amazed by her own ignorance. Yet, one night, while I was taking a shower, a presence came into the bathroom, and a voice came into my mind, saying, Jamie, the life you're living is not what I want for you. I'm your creator. I'm your God. I have a purpose for you, and it's not what's going on with your life right now. Shocked, I dropped to my knees right there in the shower. The water still running and gave my life to God. He made me a new person. And because God is now first in my life, I've made a commitment to Him that I won't be physically active or involved with anyone until I get married. Jamie smiled at me. I'd like to tell this to guys I spend a lot of time with because I want them to know my beliefs up front. I took her hand and squeezed it. You're talking to the right guy, Jamie. God is also first in my life. I too plan to not be physically involved with anyone unless I'm married to her. I'm so glad you shared your story and your feelings with me. Isn't God good to put two such like-minded people together? That was one of many great evenings with Jamie. We had a lot of friends in common and a lot of fun around town. We went to movies, shot pool, had dinner, or just talked almost every night. We discussed the joys of winning other people to the Lord and what He had done in our lives, how He was leading us. We also laughed a lot. Jamie made you laugh about everything. She laughed at herself, and she made me laugh at myself. After we'd been hanging out together for several months, we were invited to the wedding of a friend. We, us- we usually took Jamie's car when we went places together. She had a nice car, and I didn't. Plus, she was said she wasn't a good driver, so I always drove. That particular night, however, we took separate cars because she had a get-together with her family after the reception. We stayed until 9.30 or 10 p.m. when Jamie hurriedly left, rushing to be with her family. I drove to my apartment and went to bed. I was awakened about 3.30 a.m. by a phone call. Her voice trembling, one of Jamie's friends cried, Jamie had a terrible car accident. She's in the hospital with a broken neck. The young woman choked back a sob. She's she's paralyzed from the neck down and close to death. That dark night and the dreadful drive to the hospital are forever imprinted on my memory. In my groggy state, I felt like I was in the middle of a bizarre nightmare. I so badly did not want to believe Jamie was severely injured. The sign on the door of the intensive care unit said, Family members only. However, though I'd never met them, Jamie's parents had left word for the nurses to let me in. I tiptoed inside, and there lay Jamie, her face bruised and swollen, her hair matted with blood, and her body hooked up to every possible medical machine. As I stood there, staring at her in shock and disbelief, tears running down my face, not knowing what to do or say, Jamie opened her big, beautiful eyes and said, Hey, Lair, how you doing, buddy? I didn't even have a chance to ask how she was feeling before she asked about me. I carefully took her hand. We cried and talked together about her situation. Jamie said, I've always known God put you in my life for a reason, Larry, but I didn't know why. Now, I think it's because of your paralysis experience a few years ago and the way God brought you through that. You'll be able to help me keep focused on Him. When I returned the next day, she had a big smile on her face. Larry, I'm going to make you go to work every day, even though you don't want to. 
The waiting room, we'll call it the condo, is right down the hall. And it has a couch that makes into a bed. If you go to work every day, then come by to be with me every night. We'll make it through this thing together. Jamie had the most astonishing attitude that could have only come from God. She was not in denial. She knew exactly what was going on. She understood her circumstances and yet kept that peace that passes all understanding, as well as her sense of humor. Her personality never diminished. If anything, Jamie was more personable than ever. One night after I finished feeding her, I pushed the tray away and got down just a few inches from her face. As I brushed the hair off her forehead, Jamie asked, Could you scratch my eyelid? So I did that for her. We were inches apart, and I sensed our feelings for each other had intensified since the accident. Gazing into her green eyes, I couldn't help but say, Jamie, you are the most incredible woman in every way, in every way. She responded, No, Larry, not in every way. I'm a terrible driver. She really caught me off guard, and we laughed and laughed. The entire hospital staff knew about Jamie. Doctors from other wards stopped in to see her. Nurses from all over the hospital visited the remarkable spirited woman they'd heard about. For me, every night was an emotional combination of sorrow, joy, and a sense of the unique privilege I had to be that special person for her at a crisis time in her life. On my way from the condo to work Friday morning, I stopped to see her. Listen, young man, she said with a grin, tonight is Friday night, date night. I expect you to be here, dressed up, with flowers in your hand, buddy, because we're going to have a date tonight. I walked in that evening as she had instructed me, wearing a sport coat and carrying flowers. The look on her face was priceless. You didn't forget. Well, it is date night, she added, but we're going to share our date with some good friends who've come to town. I've decided we're going to have a party tonight. We rounded up all the food we could get our hands on in that hospital. We fed it to Jamie, we ate it ourselves, and we had a good time. Jamie was the life of the party. She told jokes, she made us laugh, and she made us all glad we were there. It was an amazing evening, but the most remarkable moment was when Jamie said, We've had a wonderful time together tonight. I feel like we should all join hands to say a prayer of thanks to God for His goodness. After we formed a circle around her bed, she said, Larry, you know I've never prayed aloud in front of you before. I'm kind of shy about that. But tonight I want to pray. I smiled at her, nodded, and she closed her eyes. Dear God, Jamie prayed, I want to thank you for all your blessings in my life. I don't deserve the love and friendship I've been given this week. Thank you for letting me live this week. I don't come asking you for anything except to bless my friends. I want to thank you again for all you've done for me. Amen. To this day, I feel like that was the most fantastic prayer I've ever heard. Saturday night, Jamie's health took a turn for the worse. When I stopped by after church on Sunday, the head of neurosurgery told me, Larry, I've got some bad news. Jamie is having a rough time. In rare cases, paralysis goes up the spinal cord. This is one of those cases. Jamie is no longer able to breathe on her own. On top of that, she's having problems with her heart and other organs. This looks very serious. The medical staff and her family were with her a lot on Sunday, so I didn't get to spend any time with Jamie. Monday, my heart was heavy all day. I prayed constantly for Jamie. When I walked into intensive care that evening, her father met me, his eyes sad and somber. The doctors have decided to do emergency surgery on her stomach and some other organs. There's a lot of swelling. This is basically life or death surgery.
I think you should go see her now, he squeezed my shoulder. They're taking her into surgery in just a few minutes. I dreaded seeing Jamie in that awful condition, yet I realized I needed to be there for her. She was wide awake when I walked in. The doctors had told her what was going on, so she was aware of the gravity of her situation. I got up as close to her as I could between the tubes and the cords and put my hand on her face. Jamie, I said, I love you with all my heart. The only physical freedom Jamie had had in the last week was the ability to talk. Now that function had left her. She mouthed the words back to me. I love you, too. I looked in her eyes and saw uncertainty, pain, gladness I was there, and the most graphic picture of peace I've ever seen. Jamie, you know I'm not saying this. If I could, I would trade places with you. She mouthed the words, I know you would. Again, I said, I love you. I love you, too. I'll see you again. She formed the words, I'll see you again. Then they wheeled her out of the room. Jamie died in surgery, and I did not see her again. Yet I know without a doubt we'll have a wonderful reunion in heaven someday. Some of my friends have said, Wow, you finally met somebody special, and then she died. I don't look at it that way. It was a joy to know Jamie and a privilege to be there for her during her last days on earth. I still keep a picture of her on my desk at the salon so I can be reminded of her love for God and her love for life. I have no regrets, only gladness because I was fortunate enough to be a part of her life for that short time. During her nine-day ordeal, I told Jamie, because of your extraordinary display of faith in this situation, you're going to affect a lot of people spiritually. In all sincerity, Jamie responded, Larry, if one of our friends or family members comes to the Lord through this, it's worth it. Jamie's mother since told me she became a believer because of her daughter's unflinching faith. Others have also been deeply affected by her life and death. Over 400 people attended Jamie's funeral. She was an unforgettable woman who continues to be an inspiration to everyone who knew her. People still talk about how much fun she was and what a strong faith she had. Years later, it's not unusual for someone to say, Wasn't that Jamie something else? This poem by Eugene Shea goes right along with that, really. It's called Death of One Devout. My earthly trials are over. This is my blessed day. A new world lies a-dawning as the old one slips away. Smile on me, my loved ones. This is not a time for tears. For I hear the sacred music never meant for mortal ears. Hug me close and kiss me quick, then let me peacefully die. For I hear the trumpet sounding. My new home is in the sky. Another one by Eugene Shea. These are both out of his book, The Last Caboose, Poetry for Pleasure. Eugene Shea. It's called A Senior Wife's Schedule. I knew she had no time to spare, slept hours in her favorite chair, slept right through the evening show with lights on and the TV aglow. I shall not disturb my sleeping wife. When her alarm went off, she came to life. Now she must hurry for the hour is late, changed her clothes, her teeth can wait, headed for her bedroom on a high lope. Two minutes to spare, her only hope. Don't stop me to talk, my dear wife said, or I'll be late for going to bed. And we're going to head away now, too. So until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening. 
You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.